Okay, we are ready to go with Parshas, no Parsha this week, uh, but rather in the next hour or so. Boomer? Yeah, no, it's a typo. Yes, for the baby boomers. Lag Baomer. We're going to be talking about that tonight and also tomorrow. Um, so uh, we're going to have the spirit. Are we supposed to register for that? Nah, it's so, whoever shows up. Okay. We'll have a tray of sushi, we'll have some oh, cookies. Yeah, but it's okay to bring a friend? Uh, as long as it's a friend. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's not a politician. A good friend. Okay, okay. not a problem. Okay, we are going to have an all-encompassing trip around the world today. All kinds of issues, and I hope we'll have enough time to get everything in it. I think it's going to be really a very well um, thought through class, and we'll give you a good perspective on all sides of the coin. And that will lead into tomorrow's Divrei uh, Torah as well. Let's start with a look in the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch, in the first source, talks about counting Sphira. So, I don't have the English on that part, I'm sorry. By Yom Rishon on the first day, this is the, this is the Shulchan Aruch, the base Yosef, of Yosef Karo, Sephardi. Hayom Yom Echad. Today is one day. In brackets, that's an addition made by Rav Moshe Iserlis, the Ashkenazic um, addendums. Ba-Omer, to the Omer. Until you get to seven days. Then you say, You say that's seven days, which is one day. And again, he omits a word that the Ramah adds, to the Omer. And he goes on expressing that idea. Clearly, for whatever reason, the Shulchan does not say you have to say the word, while the Ramah says you should say, and the Mishabur in the second source says most poskim say that the Nusach is La Omer with a Lamed. That's only initially to explain it a little more accurately. But then he says if you don't even say anything, La Omer, Ba Omer, just say today is 27 days, um, three weeks, and six days without saying Ba Omer, it's also fine. Okay, good. So, now let's look in the Shulchan Aruch and a couple of Simonim later. Now I got the English on this. So what are some of the customs for the Sphira period that we're counting? Shulchan Aruch says, you got the English right below it. It's the custom is not to get married between Pesach and Shavuos. Ad lag ba'omer. Until lag ba'omer. Because that's the time the students of Rabbi Kiva died. And then he, after a few more words, Shulchan continues, Noagim, the custom is, Shaloli, stop her not to take a haircut, Ad Lag La Omer. Until Lag La Omer, Shaomrim, that they said, Shaz Pasku Milamos. That's when the students died. Vainly, stop her at Yom Lamedal Baboke. Don't take a haircut until the morning of the 34th. And that, in other words, Svardim do not take haircuts at all on the 33rd. Okay? And you don't get married until Lagba Omer. Okay? 
And then as, as a few more words over there. Then the Hagah, then the Ramah adds, where it says Hagah, Ramah, but in our countries, meaning in Poland, our custom is not like his words. We do take haircuts on the 33rd. And we increase a little bit of joy. We do not say Tachanun. Okay. And that's we did not say by Mincha today. We'll not say tomorrow Tachanun. This is a joyous day. So let's start with just a couple obvious questions. It seems that there's a machlokis when you count the spirit, you say ba-omer or la-omer. Uh, the Ramah clearly every time in the first halacha kept any words ba-omer, ba-omer, ba-omer. And the Shulchan Aruch one time said ba-omer, but it said until lag-lomer. <clears throat> Interesting. So it seems to be two opinions. Do you say it's ba-omer or la-omer? Well, one thing's for sure, nobody that I know calls tonight and tomorrow Lag Lomer. It's Lag Baomer. So, an interesting question, if there seems to be a debate, if you say it La Omer or Baomer, it seems there should be a debate as to what you're going to call tonight and tomorrow. But it seems nobody, Ashkenazim or Sephardim, everybody seems to say it's Lag Baomer. So why is that? That's a nice kind of trivia question. We'll start with that. Now, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, is not the Ramah's editions. The Shulchan Aruch alone, does he talk about any rejoicing? Shulchan does not say that. He just says, you know, really, you keep everything through the 33rd day and only on the 34th day you take haircuts, get married. It doesn't seem it's a day of rejoicing at all for the Sephardic world, if you look in the Shulchan Aruch. And who mentions anything? Only the Ashkenazim. <laughs> the Ramah, who's Rav Moshe Israelist, who lived in Krakow. Now, the Beis Yosef, Rav Yosef Karol, lived in Tzvash. Pretty far distance, one from the other. And it's very interesting, so to speak, if it wasn't for what the Ramah adds, that we have a little bit of joy, we wouldn't know anything about the kind of festivities we have today that you see in Mayron. So that's an interesting, a curious thing to think about. Now, it's only worth bringing up if you have a decent answer to explain this. And then we have to understand another thing. One of the famous questions I'm almost always asked during Svira is, can I buy a new this? Can I buy a new that? Because people are under the impression that you can't make a Shechayonu okay. Bracha and you can't buy new things because they mix it up with the three weeks. Oh, yeah. They mix it up with the three weeks. The three weeks is a real serious state of mourning which gets more intense as we go. But if you look, like uh, there's restrictions even as we move on in terms of washing, bathing, all kinds of things. And here, really, the Shulchan Aruch only mentions two restrictions. Marriage and cutting hair. That's it. 
Now, that's, okay, that's, that's a bit of mourning. And, and he says, because the students of Rabbi Akiva died. What about music? So that's an interesting issue over there. So I guess maybe it goes together with weddings, so to speak. And then we got like secondary customs that kick in, such as music. But uh, this does not seem to be written in the original law. And the question is, why is that? Okay. So this, this is a very interesting idea. Now, another point we'd like to mention, historically, that uh, what is another significant event? So what happened on the 33rd day? The students of Rabbi Kiva stopped dying. That's one thing. Another thing the Zohar tells us, that Rabbi Shimbar Yochai, when he died, he instructed his disciples to observe his site the day of his death, as a time of joy and festivity. Okay, because he kind of had a very successful life. And therefore, Jews would go to Meron and celebrate that day. Now, if you look at the Zohar, source number four, before his passing, Rabbi Shimon instructed his disciples to observe his site as a time of joy and festivity. And in many works, that is what is called the Hilula de Reb Shimon Bar Yochai. The Hilula. Now, what does Hilula actually mean? No, 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 that's a test. It's Hilula. We'll see in a minute. Really, Hilula means a wedding. So it's interesting that Reb Shimon Bar Yochai wanted his day of death to be like a wedding anniversary. Now, that's very interesting. We've never before, as a yard site, the anniversary of a person's death been described as a hilula, a wedding, for good reason. <laughs> well, death and marriage are diametrically opposed. As a matter of fact, if people are married, death terminates a marriage. So why would a yard site, a day of passing, be called a wedding? Maybe because and, we are thinking maybe because uh, the rabbi thought that okay, now he's going and going to meet with Hashem. Okay. Or perhaps a message for the rest of uh, Israel to have a unification with Hashem. Okay, but it, it seems that all other people don't have the, these kinds of celebrations. Yeah, but he felt that he was on a... Okay, okay. And, and of course, that's the next question. Why Reb Shimbar Yochai is the first to receive this title of a Hilula wedding than anyone else. Okay, so you you have some possible answers. I'm sorry, what? Okay, there's a lot of discussion about it, but for the sake of today's discussion, yes, he passed away on Lagba Omer. Okay, let's move on now to uh, source number five, famous Gamor Yevamos. Barney Ramos talks about the fact, it's all Hebrew and English, discusses the period of time where Rabbi Akiva students died. It says, Zugim Talmidim Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students. And they all died at this time. And the reason is, it's highlighted in pink, Mipnesh, red, Mipnesh, they did not treat each other with respect. 
And then, and the world was now desolate of Torah. Until Rabbi Akiva came next to the rabbis of the south, and he taught Torah to them. And these were Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua, and Rabbi Shimon. I skipped him. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Bar Yochai. And they were able to transmit the, the Torah for future generations. And the Gemara goes on, and they all died from, Pes, from Pesach until Shavuos. Not every day, but 33 of those days. And they all died with a very painful death of diphtheria. So, here's a few other questions to throw into the mix over here. Since when do you die for not giving someone respect? That's not like a capital crime. It's not nice, but it's not a capital crime. And what's really hard to understand is Rabbi Akiva, if you look in source number six, on the words, love your fellow neighbor like yourself, Rashi brings down, this is a big rule in the Torah. Now, how could it be possible for them not to honor each other when Rabbi Akiva himself said, and I'm sure he hocked it into everybody's head in the yeshiva, every day they probably sang, you know, a song, kamocha. You have to love your neighbor like yourself. It's unfathomable for the student, to be a student of Rabbi Akiva. You think anybody could just walk in and be a student of Rabbi Akiva? Think a drug evader on drugs you know, a, a draft evader on drugs, you know, could just uh, apply like people used to do in the yeshivas during the Vietnam War. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let you in his yeshiva if you weren't a real reputable character. So how is it conceivable that they could do such a thing when that was his main preaching? Very difficult questions. And finally... Finally, the Gemara in Erevin, it's in Hebrew and English. Shmuel said to Rabbi Yehuda, Shinana, sharp one. Grab and eat, grab and drink. Because the world that we are passing through this world, is like a wedding. Rashi explains what was the point he was saying. Well, don't wait for tomorrow to use the money because a person has no reassurance that he'll be alive tomorrow to enjoy his money. Life is similar to a wedding which swiftly passes. So, well, nobody's saying, you know, use your money for what's important. What he's really mentioning, the main point is saying life is short. Life is short and don't squander it. That's the main idea. But why does he give the advantage, uh, the analogy of a wedding? There's other events that pass swiftly. Why can't we say that we're passing through life is like, uh, like a day, like a dream, like a thunderstorm, like a sun shower, or it's like a class. Class is short, then it ends. Why the example of a wedding? That's an interesting point. He's trying to convey a much deeper message. Life is short, he's saying. Live today. But 
So if he's saying a wedding, it must be for a very important reason. So what is? So let's uh, let's try to unpack all this. So we start off with general questions. You know, why does everybody agree it's called Lagba Omer today? It seems from the Sephardic Shulchan Aruch there isn't anything about celebration, only in the Ashkenazic version. The only restrictions during spheres seem to be haircuts and marriage. Why is that? Why, why is the yard site of Rav Shemberchai called a wedding? Why is life called like a wedding than anything else? Why is Rav Shimon the one given this title, so to speak? Why should Rabbi Akiva's students die for not giving honor? And if anything, they should for sure be doing that because that was Rabbi Akiva's credo. So the so, shit, yeah? How many of those five students, Rabbi? Uh, those ones who were left. Shimon. He started yeah. over yeah. with those five. five. Shimon so Rabbi Shimon Barish was, was his greatest or no? Mediocre. No, that, that, that's, that's not um, the point. That. He was the, the greatest. Among the five. Obviously, yeah. So we're going to explain with the Shem Mishmuel, um, one of the great Hasidic masters who wrote this piece in 1913. Sorry, there's no English for this. And let me, um, I'll just speak it out, what the issue is. And basically the answer is in one line. And the answer in one line is as follows. What did Rabbi Kiva say? Love your neighbor like yourself. And we have to understand that love and honor are not synonymous. And let's explain why. What is love? Love, the Hebrew word for love is ahava, olive hay, vase hay. The gematria of that is 13, which is the same gematria as the word echad, which is one. So love means a feeling that you are one with someone else. Parents love their children. We're talking about normal families, not dysfunctional families. Children love their parents. Husband loves his wife. Wife loves her husband. Brothers love sisters, etc., etc., because they understand they're one. They're one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's no question about that. Um, we are all one. Res- and, and you love someone. Well, see, even if you don't really care that much about them. Because you feel you're one with them. Respect is something totally different. It comes from the recognition that we are not one. We are different. And there is a quality in others that I can appreciate and respect that I may not have. And the fact that we're different is the source of the respect and and, there, and there's no contention between us which would be similar to asking you know you, you could say you know I love I love my spouse okay but do you like her what do you mean I said I love her I said I know you love her but do you like her love means you feel at one with them like it's like honor. It's like I appreciate we're not one, but you have qualities that I admire. Let me give you an example of this. Let's look at your body. Does your right hand respect your left hand? Does your right hand respect your right foot? No. You know why? 
because it's just one. It's one body. So Rabbi Akiva was drilling home the fact we're all one. And Rabbi Akiva's student loved each other. No question about it. But they did not respect each other. In other words, sometimes you love someone so much. What does that mean? You feel so one with another person. So for so one, how could you have a different opinion than me? We're one. We're one unit. How, how could you disagree with me? That, that's where the problem can lie. See, sometimes when you say you're one, it doesn't have to say you're identical. Like well, you're identical puzzle pieces are two puzzle pieces that. Okay, so what I'm saying is, you, correct, but very often people say, "I really love this person, but I don't respect this person." That it's possible. It's not a contradiction because it's two different things, you know. And when, quite often, there are people who really love other people. But they don't really respect them. Meaning to say, I don't, that um, child of mine or that spouse of mine does not have any quality that I respect. Doesn't have anything more than I have. And there are people who feel that way. And that they still love each other. Don't think that the two have to go hand in hand. Because love, is, you know, you could say, I, I don't respect you, but I'll take care of you. Let's say you have a son. I'll give you a good example. You have a child who's a loser. And really, there's nothing to respect in that child. Can't hold down a job. It's not exactly got good manners. There's really nothing there. If you were um, an employee, employer, you would not hire him for a job. If you were looking to go out on a date, you would not go on a date with that guy or that girl. Yet the parents love that child, don't they? They certainly don't respect him. There's nothing to respect. He's failed in everything he's done. He doesn't even try. So I'm saying, now, it can very well be. Now, the fact is, how do you explain so many divorces when everybody was in love with each other? <laughs> so we were in love. And they can, they can still feel a certain connection to each other but but I, I but I don't respect you. I have heard from a, from somebody who's divorced and he he actually loves his ex wife, but he says I just can't live with her. It's just you know they had they just had so many differences. It was just such a, a disrespect. Okay. But when, if something would happen to that person, he'd fall apart. Yes. Of love. Exactly. Now and and the reason why that's so here's where now we're not saying that should be, but I'm explaining why what the logic the faulty logic behind that is. If we're one, we should be in agreement. Because if we're one, then everything should be one. And you can't tolerate that it's different. And especially, you know, and that's why, you know, you could have a couple that loves each other, and one's a, li a, a liberal, one's a conservative. You know, and, and people like breaking up in their marriages because, you know, you voted Democrat and you voted Republican. You feel one. You know, you really feel you're one with that person, but you don't respect that person. That's why when Avram had to find a wife for Yitzchak, why didn't Avram go himself? And to say he was too old is not really a great answer. Because he did a lot of things as an old guy. 
when he was old and married his second wife, he sired another six kids. So he wasn't that old. Even just to travel to Haran to find a wife? So what's the deeper issue? The deeper issue is Avram knew that he couldn't be objective in picking the right wife for Yitzchak. Avram knew he was a man of kindness. He needed to marry a woman who was the protagonist, an antagonist against it, to be a Azer Kenegdo. So, and Yitzhak was different, so he knew he couldn't find the right wife. He sends Eliezer, who's unbiased. Avram loved Yitzhak, so he felt at one with Yitzhak, and he knew that he'd want to pick what he would think is right for himself and not for his son. He knew he had that, so therefore he couldn't pick the wife for him. So now these students, they, they understood, okay, we're all one. We're all family. And they felt so one with each other, they overlooked the fact to respect the other person's differences. And they said, we can't, we can't be different. <laughs> we can't be different. We're all one. This idea, they said, we're all students of Rabbi Akiva. We're all one. And there's nothing for me to, I don't see anything special in you more than I see special in myself. That was extreme. But when they died, must be the issue of covet was repaired. And now we see something very interesting. When you go to Mehron tonight or tomorrow, you will see probably approximately, I don't know, half a million Jews in that area, in the GMA, <laughs> the Greater Mehron area. And one thing's for sure, the people there are not monolithic. I think that's the right word. They're not gonna be all charading with black hats. You're gonna have thousands and thousands of Hasidim. Thousands and thousands of Mizrahi. Thousands and thousands of Spartan. Thousands of Russians. Thousands of, you name it, secular Jews. It's all over the place. We have such a different group that comes to Lag Bomer. You see all kinds of Jews. And one thing's for sure, they ain't the same. And they may not, so to speak, they have something that's deeper than love. Because they're all going to Rabbi Shimon. Because Rabbi Shimon was from the good students and he understood this idea of kavod. Kavod means, it's such an important idea, is to really, really respect that people are different. And being different, now not like Obama says, our differences are our strength, but really our differences are our strength. For liberals, our differences are, we want to make sure that the different ones are a bunch of losers and we'll come on to the government and we'll have like their votes. In Yiddishkeit, we don't look at it that way. So Kavod in a way, is much deeper than love. Now, it's very interesting. One of the Svara Makadoshim uh, explains, we know in general, the halacha, when there's a machlokas, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, we go with Beis Hillel. Even though Shammai was sharper, smarter. And the Gemara says, even though Shammai was sharper, we rule like Beis Hillel because they were more pleasant and refined. 
And when there was a discussion, they would always precede Beishamai's words before their own words when they were discussing the issue. It's interesting, Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi, who, who authored the, who edited the Mishnayis, he brought all the arguments Beisil Beishamai. Rebbe is a grandson of Hillel. And yet, every time you bring an argument Hillel and Shammai, he always brings the opinion of Shammai before Hillel. Always. Every Mishnayis, you'll see if it's an argument, Beishamai says this, then Beisil. So you see, as a descendant of Hillel, he will still mention Shammai first. Now here's the question. Since when is being pleasant and refined the key to having the law being like you? Okay, you could be, you could be in, a, in, a, in, a, in a court and you have judges. Now, the way you decide what the law is is who's smart to know the law. You have to rule judgments. You have to really know the law well. The more you know the law, the more likely you'll have a correct law. If you're just a friendly guy, but not so smart in the law, why should they make the law like you? And here's the critical answer that is said, and it's so important. Obviously, you have to have some intelligence. But sometimes one person can be far much brighter than the other one. But the one who's brighter may be very entrenched in his position and can't see any further than the brightness that he shines onto the issue. So when we're talking that the school of Hillel was pleasant and refined, we're talking not a quality of just being a nice person, but a quality of being able to arrive at the truth. And here's the real question. If we have a view on life, how do we know that that view on life is well thought out? Or maybe it's something from a narrow-minded indoctrination that you have. It could be any philosophy, you know, maybe let's just randomly, since I'm looking at Jay and I'm thinking about being financially um, prudent. Okay, so let's say... There are certain people who have, a, who have a philosophy never to buy on credit. Certain people, that's their philosophy. Don't buy what you don't have. If it's right or wrong, I don't care. But they, they, they live and die by that. It's a chance to get a deal on something. So I'm, I don't have a credit card. If I got cash in a bank, I'm going to use it. If I don't get, I'm not going to buy it. Is that a correct view or not? I don't care if it's a correct view or not. Here's the problem. Can he hear the other side of the coin or not? Well, now, the truth of the matter is, if he can't hear the other side of the coin, sometimes he's going to make very foolish mistakes. Because, you know, if there really is, I'm not saying someone's saying, if there really is a genuinely great investment to be made, the guy says, sorry, I'd have to borrow against my mortgage against my house, and I don't borrow. It's a hard and fast rule. Never, never, I don't make exceptions to my rule. Okay? The other guy says, well, explain to me exactly the nature of the deal and this. And I says, look, it, it really looks like it has all the criteria for a good deal. So for two years, I'll pay interest on $200,000 and then I'll, I'll get to $500,000 later. If it makes sense, I don't have to hold on to my philosophy. 
And that's such an important thing to know. And by listening to up, and most of these won't even hear. It. I don't want to hear the other side. But by listening to the opposing view, and you consider it, and you work through all the perspectives, then you come to a conclusion on a breadth of understanding. And when Basilo had an opinion, they said, my opinion does not have to win. All I want is that the truth should win. So Adaraba, Shammai, tell me your opinion first. I want to hear what you have to say before I have to say anything. I really want to understand where you're coming from. And you know what? If you really make more sense, I'll change my opinion and we won't even have an argument. We don't know how many arguments did not happen because Basila let Beishamai speak first and he said, you know what? You're right. And it's not even going to be a debate. But we don't know Shammai ever doing that. Shammai was much brighter, no question about it. But no one's infallible. And there are other ways to see things. And at least be open-minded enough to hear the other things. So when you come up, even if you come up with your same opinion, but you have well-considered everything else. And, and that's, a, that's a critical point. And that explains an interesting halacha. Halacha says that if a, a case comes to a Bezdin and the Sanhedrin opens the case with everybody saying he's guilty, the law is he's exonerated. And that's crazy, because if 70 say he's guilty and one says he's innocent, and then after hours of debate, it's still 71, he's, 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 he's punished. It's not coming if it's 71, all the more so he should be punished. The answer is, the Gemara says, if we, we open the case saying he's guilty. In other words, we all come in saying he's guilty and we didn't have any discussion on the matter. If there's no discussion on the matter, how do you know you came to the broadest understanding of the opinion? So, so that's a critical thing. So, so therefore, when you're able, so this is where respect comes in. The smarter you are, it's very hard to respect other opinions because you are very smart and you can be smarter than other people. And that's a big challenge. If you, and you honestly, let's say you are brighter than other people. You know, it's interesting, this uh, Matt Walsh and other people like him, who uh, he's one of these conservative, uh, uh, I don't know what call him, a journalist, reporter, whatever. He call, I guess he'd call himself a truth seeker. And he will debate all these people who, tr these trans people. So he, he will never scream and yell at anybody. He'd say, okay. You think that a man could be a woman? Just tell me one thing. What is a woman? And they don't have an answer. The answer that they're going to give is just, well, what is a woman? Are you, are you going to deny that if someone is biologically a female, you're going to say that they can be a man? So he said, well, no, there's a difference between sex and gender. He says, explain to me the difference between sex and gender. And, that, you know, and, and he lets everybody talk. He doesn't interrupt them. He doesn't interrupt them. And then they themselves don't want to discuss it anymore because they understand that they don't, because they just have an opinion. They don't want to even hear anything. That's how you disarm your opponent. You say, tell me what you think. I want to understand what you're saying. But I'm having trouble understanding how you can differentiate between sex and gender. And then when, when they give a line like, 
Well, I can explain to you why a man can be a female. He say, how can you say a man is a female when they can't have babies? So you know what they answer? Because there's women who can't have babies. <laughs> but he says, yeah, but, but, but women can have babies. Men can't. You don't make a rule from the... But if a woman who can't have baby, we acknowledge there's a problem in her health. She's a woman with a problem, not a regular woman. So you can't have a problematic woman now make a man become a woman because he can't have one. Right? Or, or, he'll, or he'll say, listen, if you are a, a paramedic and you're walking in and, you ha- and this person is bleeding and uh, the woman says, uh, the man, it's a man, it's a biological man who thinks he's a woman and says, you know, I'm pregnant deliver my baby to save my life are you going to try to deliver her baby as much as she thinks she's a woman right so I'm just saying you know let let the other side say what they want I'm trying to understand if you can convince me I'd be happy to say it but you just can't convince me the other side says we're just saying and we don't we don't, we're something to argue about and we'll just call you a misogynist and you have uh, transphobia, and that's it. So you don't really get anywhere with this. Okay, now, this explains interesting. Here's a riddle. What's the difference between a Jew and a civilized anti-Semite? The answer is, I'll give you the answer. An anti, I'll say the answer, then I'll explain it. An anti-Semite hates all Jews, but likes individual Jews. A Jew loves all Jews, but hates individual Jews. Let me explain. Whoa. Let me explain. I'll explain you, it. You do need to explain. Yeah. A, cla- a regular, we're not talking about the crazy anti-Semites, a civil anti-Semite. Civil yeah. so says, what do you think about Jews? Terrible people. Why? Well, they control the media, they control the money, they're, they're the most corrupt people. Like says, wait a minute. Isn't your doctor named Cohn? Oh, he's a good guy. But your lawyer is Schwartz. <laughs> Schwartz happens to be a nice guy. Uh, what about your accountant? It's Silverman. He's the most honest guy I could ever find. Your barber. Greenwald. Oh, he does a good barber. Wait a minute. But, but Jews, I hate them all. You understand what's going on over here. But on the other hand, you speak to a Jew, he says, I love all Jews. I love every Jew. And what about your brother-in-law? Oh, he's a schwanz. He's terrible. He two-timed me. He did this. What about your rabbi? Oh, the rabbi, he doesn't care about us, this and that. Okay. So you, you understand what's going on over here. That there's this idea. What does that mean? Because Jews know we have to love each other. Respect's another Jewish problem. Well, the non-Jews, funny enough, can respect certain Jews, but they hate all Jews. And I guess Jews suffer from this the most. You could, in the present company excluded, most people say, do you like the Jewish people? Love them. But then when you get into particulars, they don't respect them. Respect 
requires us not to be the same. If we are the same, there's nothing to respect because there's nothing unique that the other person has that I can look up to. So therefore, Lagba Omer, because it's the day that the students of Rabbi Akiva die, stop dying, brings out the cohesiveness of the unique individuality of the Jewish people. And that's why you see in Meiron, Rabbi Shimbar Yochai, the student, the successful student, every Jew of every stripe is there. Nobody's insulting anybody. Nobody's making protests. In Israel, you can have protests. You can have a million Jews protesting the other group. Right? The secular hating the Haredi. Okay? But you never know. That secular Jew can have a Haredi doctor operate on him with no problems. Okay? But when you're in Meiron, there's no such thing as people not respecting anybody. Would hate more be towards what they represent or what their general beliefs are rather than but they throw them into one pile yeah. it's just one monolithic thing they're not looking at them as individuals right so so that's what so Lagba Omer really is a time to love and respect each other and often when we have relationships they're often what we call win-lose scenarios I'm right, you're wrong. But we really would like to have the win-win scenario. Now, what else do we know about Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shimber Echai? There, there's no rainbow in his time, which would suggest that very terrible things would happen to the Jews. But on the other hand, the rainbow is very interesting. The rainbow represents a diversity in colors. And they're all coming from one light as opposed to the rainbow of the gay people who are saying, yes, we have to include everybody else. But, but the, the point is they don't want to include, they want to force their attitudes on us. If you want to have a rainbow and, and allow me to be what I be, why do they have to respect it if they think it's wrong? See, they're taking evil and trying to put it on the pedestal as good. I mean, clearly, from a Jewish perspective, being gay in these things is against the Torah. Changing your gender is against the Torah, or at least admit you have a mental problem. So th this is not something we can respect. You want to have that opinion? Don't ex expect me to raise your flag. But if you have a sincere opinion, our rainbow is you're a Chassid, and you're a Litvak, and you're uh, Ashkenaz, you're Sephardi, but we're all serving the same God. We're not forcing our way upon you to be part of our rainbow. Okay, so that really explains the idea of why Rabbi Akiva's students died at this time and why um, there is what to celebrate for this. So now we gotta backtrack and analyze some other questions. So why did they die for not giving kavod? We understand what the problem was, but why did they die for it? So you notice it said Rabbi Kiva had 12,000 pairs of students. Why can't it say 24,000? And we'll also see, just say 24,000. Why say 12,000 pairs? We know how to do the math. 
even without a calculator, I know that 12,000 pairs is 24,000. Now it's interesting, that Gemara, by the way, if we'd have time to go through the whole Gemara, that little piece we discussed with Kiva Student Set is sandwiched in a Gemara that talks about marriage. Or starts out saying if you got married when you're young, you should get married. If you lose your spouse, you should get married later. If you have children when you're young, you should have children when you're later. And they bring Rabbi Akiva as an example. He had students when he was young. And then after that discussion, when they die, so now the Talmud, I don't think I put it in. I should have put it in. It's not there. Then they talk more about marriage. I didn't bring it down, unfortunately. And it says, a person has to love his wife as much as his body and honor her more than himself. Now, this is funny, because really it seems like Gamora is talking about marriage and relationships, and in the middle, smacks in Rabbi Akiva with his students, because he had students when he was young, had students when you're old, just like children when you're young, children when you're old. So what's going on over here? What's, what's, what, what's Gamora trying to tell us over here? So what they're trying to say is, just like there's relationships as a father to a son and a husband to a wife, studying Torah is all about relationships. There are two tablets. Why are there tablets? Because Judaism is based on two relationships. Relationship between us and God and relationship between us and man. Now, if we want to understand Torah, what do we really want to understand? The relationship between us and God. What does God want from us? What's he telling us? Well, you know what? There's only one way you can really have a relationship with God is if you have a relationship with others. When you're studying with another partner, guess what? He'll probably have a different opinion than you. And what that was meant for is that each one should learn to appreciate the other. Didn't work. If you don't really appreciate the other person, then the whole message of Torah gets destroyed. Because the whole idea of Torah is covered. To really understand the truth of Torah, you gotta look at other opinions. To understand what the will of God is. That's what Torah is. We have a Torah, and then we have to decide how do we implement Torah. So how do you do that? You have to take what the Torah says and implement it in your life. Now, if you can't give cover to others, how are you ever going to come to the real truth of Torah? And if you don't, we can't come to the real truth, how are we going to transmit this to other generations? And what, what Torah you're going to bring is going to be an argumentative Torah, an incorrect Torah. It's going to be the one who muscles his way, might makes right, but not necessarily right makes right. And these are the carriers of the Torah, and these people cannot carry the Torah. That's why they were killed. And Rabbi Akiva paired them so that kavod would be meaningful. Now it's interesting. So for how many days was this a problem? 32 days. The word kavod is spelled chaf, vez, vav, dalit. The Gematria is 32. 32. The word lave is 32. Sphira is 49 days, and that's the Gematria of lave tov. Lave and tov. So, what are we really supposed to be doing over here? Rabbi Akiva was trying to teach them covenant. I know you guys understand Rafter Kamocha. But now, it's because you love each other so much, it's so hard to give each other respect. Because they mamish felt like one. One student felt he's the right hand, the other one felt he's the left hand. Why should I honor you? We have to have the same opinion. It's mine. 
and they couldn't they couldn't get beyond that on their level. Everything is on their level, obviously, but they loved each other. I'm sure if they need to borrow something, you want to borrow my car or borrow my camel, borrow my camel. You got an accident? Don't worry, you don't have to beg. I love you. We're all one. But respect, we have to have uniformity. It's got to be my way. And without that respect, you cannot transmit the Torah to the next generation. It's just not possible. Because the whole point of Torah, it, it's got to take into account their human beings, and there's factors, there's multiple factors, and the Torah has to be applied sensibly in every situation. Now, if that is the whole issue of Kavod, well, now we can understand why the Gemara, that story, is in between marriage. It says you got to love your wife like yourself, but honor her more than yourself. In a relationship, you got to find the qualities of this other person and honor her more than yourself. And if the students of Kiva could do that, that would be amazing. Now, clearly, mar- to get married, when do you know you're ready to get married? It's one of the famous questions. How do you know you're ready to get married? You know what? How do I know she's the right girl? You know what the answer is? Do you respect her? Do you find qualities that she has that you do not have? Because to be one with her will take time. That needs mutual experiences. But to respect a person, you should be able to respect them before you get married to them. And if you're not going to respect them, you shouldn't get married. Now, this period of time... It's not a question so much of mourning the deaths of the students. That's more for the three weeks. We're mourning the fact that there was no covet in between. And therefore, we push things off because they are requirements of covet. It's a time that covet is at risk. We just got out of Egypt. We got out of Egypt as one group of people, but can we respect each other's differences? When we count Svira, it's true, we count the weeks and we count the days. Why can't we do one or the other? Mm-hmm. If you tell me the weeks, like it's okay, it's four weeks. Tell me the days. Okay, just tell me it's, but yeah, today, not tonight, it's 32 days, 32 days. So I do this with my grandchildren in the car every day. How many weeks, how many days? I, I really, it's a math exercise for them. Mm-hmm. Three weeks and three, no, no, no. Think, think. Four weeks and four days, that's it. So why do I say four weeks and 32 days? The answer is weeks is the idea of the group. You got to count the group, but you also got to count the days, the individuals. And that's, that's what sphere is so important about. Now it's interesting, the beginning of Sphira is in the month of Nisan. Nisan is the sheep. Sheep are a group. We do that for the first 16 days. Then we go into ER. ER is what? The bull. And what's the bull? The individual. And now, by this point, we've done 16 and 16. We're two-thirds of the way across. We've worked equally I'm working as a group and equally as working and finding our individuality. Now that we've done that, we're ready to get married. Because we now know to give cover to each other. Haircuts. Why do you need to get a haircut? Who needs a haircut? 
Well, we know we get a haircut before Yantav. We know that when Yosef was taken out of jail, it says he got a haircut before he saw Paro. Why? Because it's to give cover to others. So this first 32, 33 days, we know we're not there yet. And therefore, we, we're not in a position yet to respect others. So we do things that show we're not ready to respect others. We don't cut our hair and we're not getting married. But once 33 days have passed, we hope we've got enough lessons learned that now I give a haircut to respect others and now I can even marry somebody. I know the marriage will be a successful marriage. And that is an amazing thing. And really, if you look about this, there is a, why, why are we calling, uh, I think the last question we asked was, why did we talk about life as like a, a wedding, right? Why is life like a wedding? Well, you think about it, at the heart of a marriage is a paradox. Why? What would you say? Is marriage an expansive experience or a restrictive experience? Well, let's put it this way. As long as you're a bachelor, you can dance to your own beat. Once you're married, you got to dance to two beats. Sometimes they're divergent. Sometimes they're conflicting. Compromise becomes the name of the game. People are different. Men and women are very different. Living together as a husband and wife require each to reconfigure their psyche and to create a new program, so to speak. And they got to create space for others. So it seems to be very restricting. Can't just do whatever you want. With the guys, you know, you can act, you know, in disgusting ways that guys do in front of guys. And women, you can, you know, yap your heads off all day long with each other. It's never a problem. But now, when you're with the, the other husband or with the wife, it, it can't be that way. Seems very restrictive. On the other hand, marriage can elevate people to infinite heights. It's not only that through marriage each one can reach their own potential, but without the opposite gender, guess what? Reproduction is impossible. I don't care what the transgenders say. In the human race, just as in the animal kingdom and even in the botanical world, it's a bonding of a male and a female that creates offspring. We're all mortal, even the most precious things in the world were mortal, like the Roman Empire, like, uh, you know, Lehman's Brothers, or whoever. All, they're all mortal, all subject to death and decline. There's only one exception, and that's children. They outlive us, and their children outlive them, and your children are the key to eternity. We're here today because thousands of years ago, people restricted their lives to eternalize their lives. And therefore, when you're going to spend a few extra hours at the office or building your company, you're investing in something that at best is going to be temporary. When you spend time with your family and children and schmoozing, you're creating something that is eternal. And that's the paradox of marriage. Marriage will impose so many limitations on your life, it's going to require you to rein in your limitless self-expression that you have. And when you decide to have children, the limitations are much more dramatic. As my son-in-law realized last night when he let Chaya go away for a few days on vacation, first night 
one of the children decides to vomit five times yeah. at night. How about late? When, yeah. uh, how about late when... Uh, Whatever. When you're two right? left. But you see, because life now is not around your desires, but your kids' needs. A very, very limiting process, but that's the process that brings you the infinite. And, the, and if you have an unrestricted life and it's unlimited... You don't get married, don't have kids, you're not tied down by anything, that'll make you finite. Okay. And really, if you think about that, isn't that we're all, before you got married, weren't we married, our bodies to our souls? Right? Our marriage to our spouse is really the second marriage. All of us experienced the first marriage at the moment of birth when our souls got married to our bodies and they moved in together. And the soul and the body are two total opposites. One's physical, one's concrete, the other's spiritual and beyond. One enjoys material pleasures, other wants a transcendental experience. One craves self-gratification, the other learns for the truth, etc., etc., and the Medrash, I don't know if I brought this, no, I didn't. yeah, the Medrash 11, talks about the farmer who marries a princess and she moves to the farm and he's so nice, he treats her respectfully, he teaches her how to milk a cow and how to feed the mules, how to clean the horses. He gave her a comfortable bed near the stable, teaching her about the crowing of the rooster. And the wife was miserable. He went to his father and the king and says, I'm trying to please her, how come I can't? The king says, you're a fine and sincere man. But you got to understand, my wife grew with fi the finer things in life. And whatever you give her, you can never satisfy her. And that really is the marriage of the body and the soul. Whatever the body will give the soul, it's just not happy with it. Okay. And our bodies are nice and polite. They mean well, but our soul is not interested in, in just physical focus. And even if the body takes the soul on expensive cruises and fancy vacations and all this, it doesn't really do anything for it. Because really when the soul enters the body, it's for a lifelong marriage. And the soul's expression is very limited. But it's trying to get the body to elevate itself. And eventually the body comes around. And ultimately, just like in the physical marriage, this spiritual marriage... Only when the soul is in the body can it reach its potential because the soul in heaven, God says, you haven't done anything. And the soul has to come down with a marriage that's not easy, that's very limiting for the soul and to be able to bring out what it's meant to bring out. And only in this world, through the difficult work of doing mitzvahs, so to speak, and those mitzvahs are the children created by the marriage between the body and the soul how you connect to Hashem, and it's only on earth can the soul transform itself, going out of its limitations as a soul even, to even go beyond that. And now we can understand what Shmuel said, that grab on, life is like a wedding. Because a wedding may seem to be like a limiting experience. That's why they have the wild bachelor parties. That's the last thing they're going to have fun, buddy. But it's precisely the limitations allow you to reach your greatest potential. And the same is true, said this rabbi. Concerning the world we pass, pass through, our journey in this world may seem so strict, 
restricted and stressful for the soul, all this agony and hardships. And even the most blessed life is such so anxiety-provoking for the soul that's confined in the material world. But you got to know, he says, listen, it's a wedding. And a wedding as restrictive as it feels, grab every mitzvah that you can. Every mitzvah is important. And realize the significance of it. Well, now you can understand why the Yorzer of Yeshimbar Yechai is called a Hilulo, is called a marriage. For he's the one who gave the Jewish world the gift of Kabbalah and the gift of mysticism and spirituality is really what? It's telling us the whole structure of how we have, who, who we are, a body connected to a soul. And the studies of Kabbalah is teaching us exactly how to ne negotiate this marriage of body and soul and to recognize what's behind the soul and what's behind the body and how, they and how everything gets revealed through the mitzvahs and all this. And therefore, he gave us the meaning to that wedding. And therefore, when he died, as the Balatanya says in source number 12, the final days of a person's earthly life marks the point at which all his deeds, teaching, and work achieve their culminating perfection and the zenith of their impact upon our lives. So every leg bomer, we celebrate Rabbi Shimon's life and the revelation of the esoteric soul of the Torah. We dance like a wedding. Because that really is the wedding. It is the wedding because now the shidduch is complete. It's the final wedding day where you put everything together and bring it all up to Shemayim. Now, oh, I've got a little challenge over here. So, the question is how do we internalize this message and why do we have trouble with this? So it's a second explanation why this world is like a marriage. If you think about it, there's a lot of things go on in a marriage. If I could spend a half an hour explaining all the things, if I say marriage, what comes to mind? Band, booze, meals, flowers. Hours and hours, weeks and months of preparation. You come early to set it up, make it look beautiful. There's pictures, there's this and that. And then there's the smorgasbord and the beautiful flowers and, 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 and the meal and the dancing. It's amazing. But the main reason we're there is for about one minute. When the groom says, Hare at mikudeshes li bitabas zo Kedas Moshe Yisrael puts the ring on her hand. That's the reason for the whole wedding. You know what happens? That most important part gets lost with all the other aspects of the wedding. That is the most important thing. And everybody's on their cell phone at that time, checking their emails. And sometimes even the parents are thinking, oh, I hope the food's going to be good. I hope this. They're, they're lost. But the most important thing, you are betrothed to me. And it gets lost. Why? Not because it's not important, but there's other things that are pushing to try to get your attention. And that's why life is like a wedding. The 
point of every moment in life is to say, God, God, you are betrothed to me, or rather God is betrothing us. To me, every moment to moment, we get closer to Hashem. And of course, we're busy people. Life is like a wedding, but you don't miss the main point. You got to see the point in every opportunity and don't get lost at the wedding and don't miss the opportunity of the moment. And all kinds of things, pressures and stressors and all these other things happen that take you off course. But if the whole point of life being the wedding is to, is to connect the body and soul and to understand that deeper message of reality. And then, of course, if you really understand that so that when somebody is different than you, you can still respect it. It all goes together. It's all about bringing the divinity of God into your life. And you can't get close to God if you don't respect his children. So therefore, whatever situation you're in life, you should never view yourself as a victim. Don't be distracted. Don't lose focus. Every minute can be sanctified. And that's what it means life is like a wedding. Grab every moment you can. That moment of, of sanctification. Don't be distracted. You see, don't be, it's, it's difficult to get to be married. It seems that you're restricting yourself, but don't get distracted. Those distractions make you think you're being restricted, but you're not really being restricted. You're really given eternity, but don't let those distractions let you think that way. So now we have to do, go and finalize on one point of a historical point. Rav Moshe Iserlis, the Ramah, lived from 1530 and he died very short life, 1572. And in that time, he was a great halachicist and he corresponded with Rabbi Yosef Karo, who lived much longer, was born much earlier in 1488, but died not much later, 1575, but he left a long life and he lived mainly in Israel. So while Rav Moshe Karo was writing his Shulchan Aruch, unbeknownst to the Ramah, he was writing his Shulchan Aruch. And then when the Shulchan Aruch was published in 1565 from the Beis Yosef, the Ramah was still in the middle of writing his Shulchan Aruch. Now he had to make a very important decision. Am I going to write now? Now, he wrote it. Now, the Shulchan Aruch, Beis Yosef, wrote it based on the three great Svartic poskim, the Rush, the Rambam, and the Rif. And from those three, that's where he came with all his halachas. Now, the Ramah lived in Krakow, was more focusing on the Germanic, the Ashkenaz, like the Baletosvas, was a whole different region of the world. And also focused a lot on custom. And he's writing a Shulchan Aruch, he's writing a Shulchan Aruch. So what's he gonna do? He says, you know what? He already wrote a Shulchan Aruch? If I write mine, then we're just gonna say there's two different Shulchan Aruchs, one for Sephardim and one for Ashkenazim. Shulchan Aruch means a set table. So Ramos said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna adopt the Shulchan Aruch and I'm only gonna make additions little addendums where the Ashkenazim differ. And he called his commentary the mapa, the tablecloth. Because Shulchan Aruch is a set table. How do you give kavod to a table? Put a tablecloth on it. 
The genius behind his work was instead of authoring his own book, he just said, I'll take what we have already and I'll just put a gloss on it. And now it really comes out, what he did, in a way, was bringing out the best of everything. And even though the Shulchan Aruch himself didn't say that Lagbom was a big party, but the Ramah said, no, the custom is it should be a big party. So the big party in, in, uh, in, in Meiron is more because the Ramah mentions it's a big party. And don't make a mistake, in Krakow tonight, there's a lot of Jews celebrating Hasidim Lagbomer in Krakow because the Ramah's site was also on Lagbomer. So it's his Lagbomer, Rav Shimbar Yochai's Lagbomer, and he brought peace. Why? He was bringing kavod. So now, even though the Ramah says we should count Ba'omer, and the Shulchan says we should count La'omer, but since Lag, whatever it is, is on the yard side of the Ramah, and the Ramah made peace to make kavod. Now, not to say the Beis Yosef didn't want to make peace, but the Beis Yosef wasn't put in the position to make peace, because the Beis Yosef finished the work already. The only question is, will the Ramah say, you know what, I don't, I don't care what you have, I'm gonna do something else. I'm gonna do my own, I'm gonna finish what I wanted. Is that the will of Hashem? So he acted like Beis Hillel. So you know what? We'll put down a shulchan. And now if I have something to add, after what he said, I'll add what I have to add. And that comes out that when we talk about Rabbi Shimbar Yochai, great, and you see mamish millions of hundreds of thousands of people in, in, in Meiron, it's beautiful. And you see so many different Jews, it's a beautiful sight. But let's not forget about the few thousand Jews that are in Krakow today. It may not be such a different group of people. Maybe they're more Hasidim, whatever they are. But you gotta realize that the whole fact that the Ramah is the Ramah, that was the whole message of Kavod. That's the whole message of Kavod. And that's why we have to, that's what Black Boomer is to appreciate every single other Jew. And to love every Jew, and to give Kavod to every Jew. And whether, and therefore when we say Lag Ba'omer, that's telling us that's where the covet belongs. The Ramah, and, and since it's his yard site, on that day, we'll go with his psaq. Since he was willing to give up his whole shulchan aruch just to be an addition, just to be a tablecloth. So now we're going to mark all the, pe- the celebrations is because of him, and we're going to log the because of him. We don't get married, we don't take haircuts. But now, tomorrow, and, and, and with the Sephardim law, maybe by the 33rd wouldn't do anything. But because the Ramosha says, no, there's something to do, deal with, well, we'll all do it in unison and celebrate together. Rav Moshe Isserlis. Isserlis. Okay. Tomorrow night, we will have a little less Torah, a little more singing and eating a little food and Say some more words from uh, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai.